We're so delighted to have all of you with us. We've looked forward for months to this conference. Um, the idea for the conference really occurred a couple of years ago, but we felt that it wasn't time yet. We uh, began teaching the course, MC 510, Mission Class 510, about two years ago now in January. We've taught it four times at the seminary. It's been one of the most intriguing and interesting experiences of my life. A very dynamic thing that's occurred on the campus. We've seen the, an incredible turnaround in the lives of uh, hundreds of students as well as other visitors that have, from time to time, were able in the early days to get into the class. The providence of God has been involved in this whole process in that we certainly didn't uh, begin praying for the sick all those years ago with the idea that we would eventually begin teaching courses to registrations as large as this one here today. But we're here for the purpose of sharing with you those things that God has taught us, and we'll put some question marks up as well as some exclamation points over the next few weeks. Before I begin today on the personal pilgrimage section of their notes, I want to share with you three basic assumptions that we have concerning what you're about to experience. If you put your notes in properly, it ought to be the very last section in your notebook. <laughs> Page one, personal pilgrimage. I'll assume when the noise dies down, you've all found your place and done what you wanted to do. Let me share with you assumptions we have concerning the purpose of this conference. Keep in mind that this conference and course has been designed to provide a new perspective on old information. We anticipate that over this week, you will go through a paradigm shift. I will cover this in depth in our sessions on worldview. So what we're saying is that you're going to look at the things you've always looked at ever since you became a Christian and look at it in a new context, in a new way. Our assumption is that most of you have some general approval of the uh, subject or you wouldn't have paid your money and come here. But we also anticipate that some of you are at different starting points. Some of you are already praying for the sick with some effectiveness. Others of you have never, had, to your knowledge, had the experience of praying for any individual that got well as a direct result of your involvement in prayer for them. And so we're anticipating that for some of you, you're going to go through a learning experience that will be rather significant in your life. A second basic thing that we're anticipating is that, that this will assist you in learning new skills and apply them to your ministries. Keep in mind that in our Western world, our basic disposition towards information is that we are information consumers. We, uh, we equate the learning process with information consumption. The more information we can consume at a higher level, the greater degree that they'll give us for it. We, here at the Vineyard, 
and myself personally, find this system somewhat faulty. My perception is that as it relates to Christianity, that study should not become an end in itself. That study has to have, ultimately, some sort of an application. That unless your study of the scripture eventually affects your behavior, you've, you've studied fruitlessly. And so our desire today is that through this week we affect behavior. You will have achieved uh, an A for the course if indeed you can function differently in the next healing circumstance that you run into after you leave here next Friday night. With that, and if we've worked out our sound problems, I'd like to share a little bit about my personal background. I grew up here in Anaheim. I moved here from the, mid, in the, mid, from the Midwest in 1946 uh, and lived over near what is now Disneyland. So you can see I haven't come very far in life. <laughs> I'm only about eight blocks from where I began my career. I was uh, a typical pagan coming from the pagan pool in America. There are approximately 90 million people here that do not have a church relationship of any sort. As I examined my history and background and dialogued with my family members, I discovered that uh, no one in my family for four generations had had any kind of church affiliation. Although we'd been raised largely in the Bible Belt in Missouri and Kentucky, we had uh, become a gospel-hardened people, a people that knew about the claims of Christ but had no intention of obeying and or relating to them in terms of a personal relationship. By the time I came along, we were no longer talking about it within the context of the family. And so I grew up without any personal relationship with Christ and any uh, first-hand information concerning his claims or his uh, uh, person and what he had done. The first time that I met a Christian, and somebody asked me one time, they were challenging me on this point, they said, you mean you grew up in, in America and you never met a Christian? And I said, well, if I did, he didn't blow his cover in my presence. <laughs> the first time that I remember meeting a Christian was a, when a friend of mine, who will be playing drums here tonight when we have another worship service, came to see me in Las Vegas and on the way stopped and bought a fifth of gin. That was his wife laughing. <laughs> and they bought a fifth of gin because they knew I liked gin, and they bought this gin and drank it on the way to Las Vegas because it got very cold and arrived rather inebriated, drunk for those of you in the front row. And we went out and had an evening together, and uh, uh, the next day they were both very, very chagrined. And we didn't understand why they were so embarrassed. Well, the truth was, they were brand new Christians, and they had come on this pilgrimage of preaching Christ to us. <laughs> and along the way, they'd been inundated. I'm not sure that they've had a drink since in the last 20 years. And so, instead of sharing us <laughs> with us the message of Christ, they 
shared a message of embarrassment. But a few weeks later, they made it good. We'd come back home by then, and uh, Dick came over one day and sat down with me and told me that he'd become a Christian. And I said, what's that? Isn't everybody in America a Christian? And he said, no. He said, I'm a born-again Christian. And then we began having the dialogue of Nicodemus and Jesus. And I said, what do you mean, born again? Do you have to enter your mother's womb? And he said, no, no, no. It's not a physical birth. It's a spiritual birth. You have to have a second birth. You have to be born again spiritually. Well, I didn't understand what he meant. and, And we talked for an hour or so, and then we went off into other subjects. But over the next few weeks and months, Dick came by regularly and shared with us. My wife and I had already gone through a a process in which we were hungry for God. We had uh, purchased a Bible uh, just a few months before that and began reading it. But before I develop that story, I don't want to get ahead of myself, we had uh, also gone through a long and difficult time in our marriage, and we were really very ripe and harvestable people, but we were so limited in our understanding. We didn't know the first thing about Christianity. Some months before this occasion in which Dick came, I I had gone to Las Vegas to work with one of the groups that I was working with at the time. I was a, uh, at that time I had a show group, but I was also developing uh, a rock and roll group called the Righteous Brothers. And while I was there um, uh, in Las Vegas, I went through an experience. My wife and I had been separated for a few months, and I went through an experience that, uh, that, that began, for me, marked the beginning of my spiritual trek towards Christ. Uh, What had happened was that I had, uh, in the heartbreak of separation and all the pain and agony that goes with that, I had uh, been seeking God in my own way. Now, it's difficult when the only people you know are musicians and druggies and alcoholics and bartenders and waitresses. and I mean, that's the only people I could have dialogue. That's who I was getting my marriage counseling from. You can imagine how good it was. And I was having dialogue with them about religion. And they were saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'm into religion. And, and we talked about all kinds of diverse religions. One guy recommended that the best thing I could do is when I got off work, and by the way, I worked a late night shift, and that was a, a kind of a prestigious thing to do in Las Vegas. The later you work, the more important your musical group was because that kept people up. And uh, I would get off at 4 in the morning, and I began driving out into the desert and watching the sun come up, because someone told me that that was a good way to to groove on a religious experience. And so I had done that a couple times, you know, sat out there and watched the sun come up, and uh, nothing happened, you know, nothing special anyway. But this one day, I was driving out there in the morning, and as I was driving, I began reflecting on where things were in my life. I was, everything was a mess. My relationship with my wife was not good, and my kids, and, and everything was a mess, you know. My career was zooming. I was doing well in that area, but I was an unhappy guy. And I was driving along, and I began weeping. Now, I had, I had learned one thing in, in my 28 years as on the earth, and that was that a man ain't supposed to cry. You know that one? And so I'm driving along, and I begin weeping, and I'm embarrassed. I was not only embarrassed, I was humiliated. And I thought, oh no, I'm, I'm, oh no, this is weird, this is really weird. And I was crying more and more and I began sobbing. And finally I had to pull over to the side of the road, get out of the car. I walked around for a while, cussing and kicking the cactus and trying to get a hold of myself. And I think it grows more dramatic with the telling, but I, at one point... <laughs> you weren't there, were you? <laughs> at one point, 
I, I stopped and I looked up at the heavens and for the first time in my life, I saw the stars and constellations as, as something emanating from someone. And I remember standing there, I was sort of awestruck, and I said, Oh God, if you're there, help me. And I wept for a couple moments, and then all of a sudden this deep shame came over me. I thought, oh no. Oh no, now you've, oh, you've really done it. Now you're talking to the dark. <laughs> you've gone over the edge. Uh, well, the only thing left is I'll go commit myself into the hospital. But then I remembered that part about my mother in the underwear, and so I thought, well, I'd better go by the, the hotel and change before I go to the hospital. <laughs> you know that part? From that high, I've been learning that one. And so, <laughs> and so I went on. Uh, I went by the hotel, and when I walked in the hotel, besides that, I had some drugs that I thought I'd better put away in case I was in that, ho- in that hospital very long. And so I went, I went by the hotel, and when I walked in the hotel uh, lobby, the night clerk yelled at me and said, Hey, John, there's a message here from your wife. And I said, From my wife? It can't be from my wife. I mean, my wife wouldn't even talk to me anymore. I mean, it can't be from my wife. And he said, Yeah. I said, Call this number. So I went over to the lobby phone and I dialed it and sure enough, my wife answered the phone. I said, well, what do you want? And she said, well, I've been thinking it over. And she says, I've decided to give it one more try. Come and get me. And when she said that, it was like a blow to my chest. I fell back against the wall and I thought, wow, I'm in touch with the supernatural. (laughs) Because I realized suddenly that I had, uh, that there was a connection between that, oh God, if you're there, help me. And my wife responding, and I said, when did, when did you do this? When did you decide this? She said, about a half an hour ago. And I thought, ah! <laughs> you know, I got her, you know. And so I said, well, I'll be right there. Now, I was in Las Vegas, and we lived down by Newport Beach, Fountain Valley, actually, in those days. And I got in the car, and I drove there in three and a half hours. Now, for those of you that are not from Southern California, you don't know how hard that is to do. But I drove fast. Anyway, I remember I... <laughs> I got in the car and I'm driving along and I'm, ex- I'm excited and, I'm, and, I'm, and I, I said my second prayer. My first prayer was, oh God, help me. And now I said, and a baby God, you know. And I, <laughs> you know, you really got her that time, you know. Because I had been trying to get my wife to, to straighten up for a year, you know. And I, and I couldn't get her straightened out. And so I'm driving along, and I, and I started talking to him. About, I figured, well, you know, I'm on a roll. So I started talking to him about everything. You know, how about this, and how about that, and why don't you do this? And, and you know, and I, I thought I might as well, now that I got plugged in, I might as well just talk about it all. So I get home. Now, you've got to understand that this had been a really bad year. And I'd gone through a, a very difficult time. I was drinking very heavily, and I was using drugs, and I was working very long hours and sleeping two and three hours a day. And I was in... I was yellow from smoke. I smoked five packs of cigarettes a day. You know, my nostril, I was, I mean, you just, and, and I was skinny. I weighed 150 pounds. And for me, that's skinny, super skinny. I probably was in better condition then than I am now. Anyway. <laughs> and so I appear at the door, and there's my wife. And she's got the kids all bundled up, and everything's ready. And we stuff them in the car, and we're backing out of the driveway. And I turned to her, and I said, I'm in touch with the supernatural. <laughs> and I can still remember she went, who? 
her hands sort of fluttered to her breath. And I said, God. She said, oh, well, everyone knows God. And I said, not me. I've been talking to him. She said, well, that's called prayer. Don't you know about praying? I said, no. And suddenly she became a religious expert. <laughs> and for the next hour, we talked about God. You know, we'd never really talked about God before. We'd been married seven years, and we'd never talked about God. And she told me all kinds of things about God. She told me about Mary, and she told me about the catechism, and she told me about the... Oh, she told me God had a book out. And I said, I said, no kidding. She, I said, what's it called? She said, it's called the Bible. I said, God wrote that book? And she said, yes, that's God's book. He wrote that book. I said, well, when did he do that? She said, oh, a long time ago. I said, no kidding. I said, have you ever read it? And she said, yeah, I've read it. I said, all of it? And she said, well, I've read lots of it. I said, no kidding. I said, well, where do you get a book like that? And she said, oh, you can buy them in the stores. I said, I never saw any in the stores. Well, she said, you've been going in the wrong stores. She said, you, you can get one. And so that day, I got, I got back to Las Vegas that afternoon, and I put my family in. We uh, rented a condominium. I put my family in there, and I decided to go down and buy a book, a Bible. Now, the problem was the only places I shopped was like the casino stores and things like that. And it's not easy to buy a Bible in Las Vegas in the casino stores. And so I went to several of them, and uh, finally this one lady says, you're not going to find a Bible here. And I said, you know, I'm beginning to believe that. I said, where would you go if you wanted a Bible? She said, go across the street, and she said, uh, there's a book rack, and on the book rack there's a Bible. Now, my wife had been very careful to describe to me what Bibles look like. She says they're black, and it says Holy Bible on the side of them, or on the back of them. And uh, I said, is it black? I didn't want anybody to put anything over me. You know? I, I said, is it black? She said, well, I don't think so. I said, well, then it can't be a Bible. And she said, I think it's a Bible. Go on over there. So I went over to the drugstore, and sure enough, on the, I, I asked the clerk, and she, she went over, and she got this green book. It was paperback, and she took it down, and it said, New Testament, New English New Testament. And I said, that's not a Bible. And she said, yeah, it's a Bible. It's half a Bible. And I said, it's half a Bible? <laughs> I said, what do you mean it's half a... This thing was getting complicated, you know? I said, what do you mean it's half a Bible? And she said, it's half a Bible. I said, you sell it for half price? And she said, no, but take it, you'll like it. Well, I found out later you can't get saved reading that translation. <laughs> and I told the guy, shh, God doesn't know that because that's the one I read. And it worked for me, you know? Well, anyway, I got the book home, and I started reading it. You ever read that book? That's a weird book. It's all about Jewish people. I started reading. I read about seven or eight pages, and I went into my wife, and I said, this is all about Jewish people. And she said, well, I know that. She said, God's Jewish. <laughs> I said, I said, oh, come on. Is he really? You know. Now, keep in mind, I didn't have any prejudice about Jews because I had worked with Jewish people all my life. I'd been in the entertainment industry, in the garment industry before that, and, and uh, you know, and all through show business and record industry. Every place I worked, I worked with Jewish people. It wasn't any antagonism towards them being Jew. That was just news to me that God was a Jew. I didn't know, you know. And so we tried to read the book. Well, uh, uh, I started taking it with me to work. Now, when I went to work at night, we, we worked the midnight shift from midnight till four, and we would do a show, and then we would have an intermission while another group did a show, and then we would go back. We were a lounge act. 
And so during the intermissions, I was taking my Bible and I was going in and sitting down at the bar. And, and they had these little pin lights, you know, over the bar. And I was, I was sitting there reading one night. And the bartender came over and said, what you reading? And I said, the Bible. And he said, you shouldn't read it here. And I said, why not? The light's good. And he says, no. Nah. He says, you shouldn't read it. It's beside. I said, he says, that's not the real Bible anyway. And I, I slammed it down. I said, I knew it. I said, what's the real Bible like? And he says, well, they're black. And I thought, all right. You know, this guy knows. He knows what it is. And I said, and it says Holy Bible on it. And he says, yes. And, he, and I said, well, where do you get them? He says, well, you buy them at the Bible bookstore, dummy. I said, the Bible bookstore? And he said, yeah. He says, there's one down the street. And so I went right into the lobby and looked up in the yellow pages. And sure enough, right down the street, there was a Bible bookstore. So I got in my car and drove down there, and it was closed. <laughs> They're missing a lot of business clothes. You know, the sinners are out at that time of night. And so I, I went back to him and I said, they're, they're closed. He said, well, he says, you can get it in the morning. And he, and he wrote a note down. He said, just give him this note and you'll get the real, true Bible. And so the next morning, I waited down there. I got off the shift at 4 o'clock, went down there and parked and waited. And about 8.30, this woman came and opened the door and I followed her in. She was a nice lady. And I said, I want to buy a Bible. And she says, oh, good. And then I found out there's all kinds of Bibles, you know, lots of Bibles. You've got big Bibles and little Bibles. And she said, what kind of Bible do you want? I said, I don't know. And I pulled this note out and I handed it to her. And on it, it said, the King James Virgin. You know? <laughs> she laughed, too. Anyway, the next thing I know, about ten minutes later, I'm walking out the door and I'm the proud owner of a Bible. It's got Moroccan leather, you know, and it's got little finger tabs, you know, and it's got a concordance in the back and a dick. Oh, it was wonderful. And so I took it home and I sat down to read it. I was so excited. I was so excited. Now, about ten o'clock in the morning, I sat down to read it and I can't understand a thing. Have you ever tried to read that book? That's the weirdest book. I, well, I opened up to Ezekiel, you know. <laughs> That's a weird dude, man, at Ezekiel. Well, anyway, I was very disappointed. So I'm talking to my wife about it, and I'm saying, look, this book's hard to read. And she said, I know, it's really difficult to understand. That's why people read it over and over again, you know. I mean, they've got to read it more than once? And she said, yeah. And I said, you know, God is hard to get connected with. It's hard to find God, you know. Well, over the next few weeks and months, we continued our, the process daily of, of reading the Bible. We found after a week or two that, we, that somebody recommended a series of books for children on the Bible. We found out we could buy them at the same bookstore. We went and got them, and we would read these little children's books, and then we would read the Bible. And that was working out pretty good. And after about three months, we decided to leave Las Vegas and go back home. We hadn't been home more than a week or so when my friend Dick came over to see me. He began sharing with us, and now we had a, a, someone that was a living witness. And over the next few weeks... He began talking to us about Jesus and what Jesus could do for us. Well, one of the weirdest things happened was they invited us to church. You ever been to church? Come on, own up. You ever been to church? Well, one morning at 7 o'clock, now keep in mind, I didn't get home normally until about 2 o'clock. So at 7 o'clock, my wife's pushing me and saying, we're going to church, get up, we're going to church. I'm saying, hot dog, you know, I don't, I don't want to go to church. Why do they have it so early in the morning? She said, well, you got to go, we got to drive her up to your Belinda because that's where God was 
in Yorba Linda <laughs> at Dick and Lynn's church. And so we got dressed and we got in the car, you know, and it took us a long time. We couldn't find the kids' shoes and we, and we got in the car and by then I was mad and we got in a bit, you know, argument and, and we found out later it was the tradition that you're supposed to <laughs> argue <laughs> all the way to church. But we didn't know it, you know, we were, we were all, already into the thing and we, we argued all the way up there and we finally get there and it's, it's a little old building, you know. I remember I drove up in front of it and I thought, this place is hurting, you know. It's old and everything. And they got one of these marquees out in front, you know, with, a, with what's on for the day. And I'm looking at that and I thought, that doesn't look interesting. You know, I didn't even know what it was talking about. The next thing I know, I'm, we're out of, the, out of the car and we're walking uh, up these steps. And I suddenly realize that I'm the only one there smoking. And I thought, hey, this is 1963. <laughs> Don't you guys know how, you know? And, and I, so I started looking for an ashtray. You ever look for an ashtray in one of those places? I couldn't find one for anything, you know? I finally put it out on the ground. And some guy with a flower looked at it. Then another weird thing happened. I noticed that everybody talked real loud. Hi, how are you? They said, you know. <laughs> and you can put your child over here, and I'm not going to put my child over there. You know, I don't know what was going on. This is the weirdest thing I had ever been to. And, I mean, I've been in and out of bars for years, and nobody had ever treated me this way. And so I'm, I'm walking real close to my wife, because I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I, you know, I didn't know what was next. And we walk in through this building, and this guy hands us a menu. And, and I'm looking at it, and, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me at all, you know. And we're walking along, and my kids, I, I, Chris was on one hand, and Tim's on the other hand, and Carol's got uh, uh, Sean under her arm, and we'd put Stephanie in this thing. They said they'd give her back later on, but we weren't sure. And we're, we're walking through there, and uh, uh, one of the kids says, Hey, Daddy, what's that? I said, Hell, I don't know. <laughs> and my wife turned around and said, Shh, Don't cuss. <laughs> and I said, I'm not cussing. I'll show you cussing. <laughs> That's all we were good at in those days was fighting. And so we finally get seated, and they made us set right down in the front row. Did they ever do that to you? All the back seats were full, and then and we had to. <laughs> and we're sitting there, and we got this, you know, we're looking at this menu, and, and we don't know what's going to happen. The next thing I know, these three guys walk in, and they're real nice looking guys. They all got suits on, and they, they come in and they sit down, and one guy sort of bounces up and comes up to a thing that looks sort of like this, and he says, Good morning! And I thought, Well, that's a nice way to open the show, you know, real friendly. And he said, Let us pray. Our Father and our God. I thought, what's that? So I turned to my friend Dick and I said, what's the matter with his voice? He said, I don't know, they all sound like that. He says, I think they get it at seminary. And this guy, and he finished praying, I guess, and then he sat down, and another guy came up and said he was going to minister, 
give the ministry of the word. And so they began reading the Bible. Now, keep in mind, all these weeks we had been reading the King James Bible, but we'd never read it out loud. We didn't know what it sounded like. And the guy started speaking, and I thought, oh no, he's got a speech impediment. He lists. <laughs> and I turned to my wife and I said, listen to that poor guy. She said, oh, I know, I know. And she said, well, there's, you know, there's no better place to hire the handicapped than, <laughs> than the church. And I thought, this place is weird. And then they started singing these songs. You ever, you ever heard a congregational song? We had a guy standing right behind us. He wasn't that close to any note on the page. You know? I mean, not that close. And I thought, any minute, those guys with the flowers, you know? We're going to get rid of this dude. You know, he's not going to last long here. And then the next thing, I, you've never been to church yet. The next thing that happened, the next thing, I mean, this is really weird. The next thing that happened is on the thing, it said that the choir was going to minister. And when the choir stood up to sing and they hit the first note, I said, this is no choir. This is a pickup group. Surely they couldn't have rehearsed and sound that bad. It was awful. I listened to it, I listened to it, I listened to it. Now, it's an interesting thing. You know, when a, when a, a speaker's speaking or a choir is singing and a, people are listening to them, there's two jobs going on at the same time. I found out that I finished my job a lot sooner than they finished their job. <laughs> I was through before they were. In any case, they sang for a while, and then this gal sang a solo. Anyway, this gal sang a soul. This is the kind of gal that comes up and introduces her song about, you know, that God's given me this voice and I'm going to give it back to him. And God goes, no. <laughs> she had a vibrato that went at least five notes. She was in any of three keys at any time that she wanted to be there. Now, these were lovely people. Please understand that. But this was my impression that first day. The next thing I know, this guy's preaching, and I don't know what he's talking about. And I'm listening, and I'm listening, and I'm counting the tiles, and I'm, my kids are squirming, and they want to go, and they're talking to me, and they have to go to the bathroom, and they can't go to the bathroom because of the guys with the flowers. And, the, and it's going on and 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 on. And I'm thinking, this is really bad news. I've got to get out of here. First of all, I hadn't gone 40 minutes without smoking in years. I was hurting, you know, my nose was draining, you know. Oh, it was awful. So I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, I, this has got to stop. This has got to stop. And all of a sudden, I knew it was going to stop. Because I could sense the momentum picking up. You know, when the show's going to close, they, they rally for this big finish. And the guy was saying something to the effect that, uh, that if anybody's been moved by what they've just heard, that they were supposed to come forward to this altar. And I'm looking for the altar, and I can't see any altar, because I've seen the movies, you know, where they put the maiden on the thing, and they, you know, <laughs> they didn't have anything like that. So I turned to my friend, I said, where's the altar? They forgot the altar, they blew it, they forgot. No, he says, that's that, that banister thing that goes right around there, and like that, around the, st the stairs, and everything. that's the altar. I said, that can't be the altar, they can't get any maiden on that altar, you know. He says, no, that's the altar. That's what they use for the altar, John. That's, what, that's the altar, all right. Okay, Dick, that's the altar. 
And so I thought, well, anyway, this is dumb. Nobody's going to, I mean, this is 1963, you know. Nobody's going to come forward there and, and, and go to that altar. The next thing I know, some guy right behind me, about three rows, gets up and walks down the aisle. I watched him. I thought, he got one! I guess he felt the same way because now he really got excited. He started talking faster and faster. And the next, this guy came and stood there, and the next thing I know, this uh, mother and, a, and, her, and her daughter, a teenage daughter, got up from the other side, and they started walking forward, and they were crying. I thought, oh, no. I was so embarrassed. Public display of emotion, you know. I couldn't believe it. They stood there for a few moments, and then the guy said, now we're going to go into the inquiry room. And so I turned and I said, what's the inquiry room? Dick said, I don't know. I've never, I never been in there. You know? I said, what do they do to him? I don't know. I said, well, what's an inquiry anyway? He says, I don't know, John. I don't know the answer to that. And I said, well, when are they going to let us out? He says, real quick, real quick now. So all of a sudden, it was time to go. You know that feeling? I grabbed my kids and I, I, you know, I started towards the door. And I'm going as fast as I can go. And as, as I'm going out the door, here comes Dick and Lynn, my friends, and they're coming across the lawn, and Dick waves at him, and he said, Well, John, how'd you like the church service? I said, Oh, man, that's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. That's the strangest, I mean, that's a weird group, man. I mean, why would it, that's weird, man. They're, those people are weird in there. Uh, how often do you have to do this? He said, Well, I, he said, I was going to invite you back tonight. I said, You go twice on Sunday? He said, I go every time they open the doors. And his, I could see in his face that his feelings were hurt. I said, you don't like these people, do you? He said, I love them, John. Well, about then, it was just after the Korean War, and they were talking about brainwashing in those days. And I said, man, they've washed your brains. You're, you're going to become one of them. He said, John, I already am. And I said, that's too weird, man. I could never do it. I could never join up with those people. Look how they dress. Look how they talk. Look how they act. Man, they're, they're weird. I can't relate to Father, Father, and all I can't relate to that, man. I can't do it. While I'm saying that, my wife's going, yes, we can. Yes, we can. We can do it. So we get in the car and we argue all the way home. <laughs> and as I said earlier, that's the tradition. <laughs> that's what you do coming. That's what you do going. So we get home, and a few days later, uh, uh, we get this phone call, and, and uh, Lynn is saying, will you come to Bible study? I said, what's Bible study? Well, we, we, we all gather in our house, and we drink coffee and eat cookies and talk about the Bible. I said, do you do it very long? And she says, oh, a couple hours. A couple hours? I said, I can't do it, man. All I've got is one night a week off. There's just no way I can do it. She said, what night is it? And I said, well, it's Monday night. I, you know, I, and your group's on Tuesday night, right? Or it was something like that. About an hour later, I get, we get a phone call. Well, it's switched. <laughs> switched. You ever been to Bible study? Have you? Well, we went. That first night we went, and there was a guy that was, his name was Gunner. And he was a welder, and I figured, well, a welder, he couldn't be too smart. So I'll go. And he was the Bible teacher. And we got there, and it was just Dick and Lynn and my, my wife and I and this guy named Gunner and this other guy uh, named Bucky. 
It was a nice little group. And we sat down, and uh, I, I wasn't going to let this guy put anything over on me, you know. And I said, look, man, before we get started, let me just say in front, I don't believe all this stuff. He said, I understand that. And I said, uh, besides that, I, I don't want to know, about, I want to know about God. I've been trying to find out about God, and all you guys do is talk about Jesus. And I want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk about God. He said, well, that's because you don't understand that Jesus is God. I said, where does it say that? And so he began thumbing through the Bible and showing me different things in a verse. I mean, I didn't understand most of what he was saying, but he talked and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked, and he talked for about a half hour. And uh, when he got all through, I, I sensed that he thought he'd convinced me, and I said, well, that's really interesting. And, and uh, my friend Dick was sitting there, and he suddenly became the interpreter. Now, you've got to understand, I was a musician, and I didn't, understand, I didn't know how to talk Christianese. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, somebody would say, praise the Lord, or something. I remember a few weeks after I was there, somebody walked up to me and said, have you been washed in the blood, brother? I thought... I said, when do they make you do that? And so I had a hard time with some of the images, you know, and, and the concepts that they were putting at me. And, and, uh, and so my, my friend Dick, uh, he interpreted for me. This guy would talk a long time, and then Dick would just sort of summarize it, you know, in some, uh, a phrase that made sense to me. Well, that's the way the evening went. After about two or three hours... I was really getting into it. You've got to understand, I was a night person. I was used to be, I, I mean, I was really awake at 11, 12, 1, 2, and 3. That's when I did my best work. And so this guy, you know, he's a welder. He gets up early in the morning. So about 11.30 or so, he's getting, you know, and I'm saying, well, you can go in a minute, but answer me this. And then I would ask him another question. And then another question. And he kept saying, boy, this guy's hungry. And I said, no, I ate before I came. I'm not hungry. But, but tell me this, you know. Tell me what this means, and tell me what that means. Well, it was the greatest night of my life. I went home so excited I couldn't sleep. You know, I stayed up all night and read the Bible. It was wonderful. I finally had some grasp of some ideas and some concepts. I finally had someone I could talk to. Well, two, it turned out to be Tuesday night. Tuesday night became the focal point of my life. I would wait all week to be there. We would drive up in, into Yorba Linda. We lived down in Fountain Valley area. We would drive up to Yorba Linda about 2 o'clock in the afternoon and just drive around. Because we thought God lived up there. <laughs> and we just drive around and talk about him, you know, and read the book and talk and talk and talk about all the things we were learning. We were super excited. Weeks went by. We didn't understand all the issues. I didn't know that the, the, what the Bible was. I didn't know who the Jesus was. I didn't know what he had done. And it took weeks to get the... I mean, you just don't understand. I didn't have any grasp of it. It wasn't simple for me. It was very complex, all of these things. And over a period of weeks, it began to pull together. And finally, I got the idea. Jesus is the Son of God. He died for sins. I, people have sinned. I understood that. It made sense. I didn't think I had sinned, but I understood that others had. <laughs> and so one night, we're all talking on this thing, and all of a sudden, my wife says, I think it's time to do something about this. And the guy closed his Bible, you know, real clear. And I thought, oh, no. And he says, so do I. And my wife and he are talking, and I'm watching him, and the next thing I know, she's kneeling on the floor and talking to the plaster. <laughs> and she's saying, oh God, I'm heartily sorry for my sins. I thought, well, what'd she do? Because <laughs> she was a good guy, you know. 
I mean, I knew her, I'd known her real well. I thought she was a pretty good guy, you know. Not as good as I was, but a good guy. And so she's talking, and I'm thinking, this is really strange. You know, she's doing this thing that they've all done. And I, and I said, one, two, three, wait a minute. And I'd been on a few stages in my life, and I knew it was about time for me to do my turn. When she finished, it was my turn. And I was, I sat there and I thought, oh, no. Ha, 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 They're not going to get, no, I'm not going to do this. And I remember I was sitting there and I was in the captain's chair and I had a hold of both handles, you know. They're not going to drag me out of this chair, you know. And I'm sitting there and the next thing I know, I'm on my knees. Now, I don't know, to, to save my life, I don't know whether I got out of the chair or was shoved. I know theologically that that's very important, but I've never been able to figure it out. <laughs> All I know was the next thing, I was on my knees and I was trying to pray this prayer of repentance they kept talking about. But I couldn't pray. All I could do was go, <laughs> for hours. I, it seemed like hours, at least a half hour. My nose is running. It's all over my chest, you know. My eyes are swelling shut. I'm sobbing. My body is racked with pain. And, I'm, and about 20 minutes into it, I'm realizing that I'm making an utter fool of myself. And I thought, if this doesn't work, I'm going to die. How will I explain this, you know, if this thing doesn't connect? And so the next thing I know, I'm ha I have a, a, a recollection. Years before, I'd gotten in, into a situation where I was out of money, came back to Los Angeles, this is when I was a traveling musician, and I needed some money, and I had a friend that did drugs. And he sold them, he was a connection, and he sold them in Pershing Square, you know, a great downtown. If you haven't been there, uh, you missed it. You had to be there. You had to visit it once to understand it. Pershing Square is a notorious park in the center of... Uh, Los Angeles. And so I went down there to find my friend who I knew would have some money because drug dealers always have money. And I, and I needed some money. I wanted to borrow some money from him. And uh, while I was waiting for him, it was kind of a miserable day, kind of rainy and everything. And I was waiting for him to come. And here comes this guy walking along. And he's got one of these signs, like an Eat at Joe's type of sign, you know, front and back. And on the front it said, I am a fool for Christ. And on the back it said, whose fool are you? Well, when I saw it at the time, I thought, oh, weird religious weirdo, you know, he went by. But here I am, all these years later, I'm kneeling on my friend's living room floor, I'm sobbing, I'm suddenly realized that I'm making a complete fool of myself, and I, and I remember that thing. I thought, that's it. That's it. I'm going to be his fool. That's it. And I resolved in my heart at that moment that from that point out, I was going to do the foolish thing in the eyes of the world. I didn't know it was going to be the foolish thing in the eyes of the church, too. <laughs> but I determined that night that if Christ was worth coming to at all, he was worth coming all the way with. And so I got up from there and I made a fool ever since, wherever I could be, in every way that I could. But my heart's intent has always been to be his fool. Well, from that point on, you, you would think it would get easy, but it got weirder. Over the next few years, I was incorporated in the church. As I, as I was, I was constantly witnessing and sharing with my friends. Hundreds of people came to Christ. We filled this little church up, 
And it, there, there was harmony at one level. I mean, the people were lovely people. I want you to know that. But they just didn't know how to relate to these newcomers. They were not homogenous with them. They didn't relate well to them. The newcomers had a different lifestyle. They had a different value system. You know, I, I thought we were supposed to catch them and that we'd all clean them together. I didn't know that they wanted them cleaned before I brought them home to church. But over a period of time, that became evident. And there was tension over that all the time. And I remember one day, a, a lovely lady, one that I had a lot of respect for, but had, had grown up in that church, one day she stood at the back door of the church, tears running down her face, her chin trembling, and she was just violently angry with me. And she said, you've ruined my church. And I looked at her and I thought, that's the truth. We've really messed your church up. And I, and I stood there and I started crying with her and I put my arms around her and I said, I really love you. And I, I said, I, I feel your pain. I, I, I understand your confusion. But I said, what could I do? You people took me in. You embraced me. And could I leave the rest of them out there dying and going to hell? I had to tell them about Jesus. I had to tell them what you'd given me. And she said, I know, I know. It's just that change is so hard. It's so hard. And we wept together that day. And I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten her pain. Because she was a lovely lady that loves the Lord. But all of these strangers, all of this change, all of these new people coming in had frustrated her and served to ruin the church that she loved. It had become a new church, a different church. Over the next few years, it grew larger and larger until it became one of the larger churches in the denomination. We relocated and built a big facility, and we were very proud of it, inordinately. I think sometimes I was even uh, carnally connected at that point. I just, I was very proud of that church. Not only the facility, but the people. One day I'm walking along in the church. This is several years later. I'm now a pastor, been ordained for about three or four years, had some visibility in the denomination and outside of it, had helped plant other churches, and was you know, recognized in the community and, and in a very nice position in life. And I'm walking along, and I had just had this exchange with a young man in the church who I had to set straight. Because he hadn't, been a, he hadn't been coming to church regularly, and he came to me, and he was confessing a problem that he was having. And I said, you know, you wouldn't have this problem if you were just in, in the church more often. You need to be at church more often, and you need to learn to give, and you need to learn to be more involved. And, you know, there's some work and some service here that if, I, if you just get in connected with that, you, and I, I preached him the party line. I laid it out for him. I said, you need to be here, man, if you're going to get this stuff straightened out. Now, I did it with a good heart and a good intent, but I preached in the party line, and as I was walking away from him, the Lord spoke to me, and he said, John, would you go to this church if you weren't paid to? Now, you've got to understand the context of this. This is years later, and this is my church. I'm the pastor. Along with another, we were co-pastors. But it was my church, and every, I mean, my thumbprints were all over that place. I helped design the building and select the colors and led most of the people to Christ that were there, hundreds of them. It was my church. And God spoke to my heart and said, if you weren't paid, would you go here? And I'm walking along, and I started walking slower and slower, and I thought, no way. I don't like this place. And it was a moment of revelation for me. And I suddenly realized, 
that I was doing something I didn't even like. And I went, I, it was so staggering to me, I, I hurried off into my little office there, and I sat down and I thought, and, and, and in front of the, my desk, and I thought, what's wrong? What's wrong? Now, if you, I want to tell you something. There's two or three prayers that God always answers. And one of the ones that he always answers is, God, what's wrong with me? <laughs> if you don't want to know the answer to that, never ask it. But I asked it. I said, God, what's wrong with me? And boy, did he unload. He began showing me how I'd gotten caught up in administration and machinery and how I'd become so mechanical and manipulative, how I'd come to a place where I loved the institution more than the body of Christ, how I'd gotten to a place where I was angered and frustrated by those that wouldn't fall in line and, and take their rightful places and, and honor their and respect their duties and, and all. And at the same time, I had uh, earlier on defended those same people as when I was so active in converting them. And I'd come to a place where I was so institutionalized myself and so tied into its values, to its focus, that I was the worst of all the offenders. And I sat there and I began sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And I said, oh God, what's wrong? What, how did it get this way? And he began showing me just peace. Piece after piece, point after point, showing me how I had turned away and turned away. Again and again, the Spirit of God had spoken to me, and I had turned from the Spirit and went after the things that I thought were logical and right and orderly and those things that would prosper and those things that, would, that could easily be adapted into the institution, into the organization. And I had given myself over to the things, not of God, but the things that were like God and for God. And I had in the process made the institution and my ministry God, and he had, was no longer God at all in my life. When I, as I recognized that that day, God began showing me out of the New Testament various scriptures and showed me the relationship and the difference between the church as I knew it, the church that I had made, and the church that he made. It wasn't until years later that God spoke to me profoundly on this subject but I understood even that day that I had begotten something that was not of God. And I cried out in my agony and I said, Oh God, get me out of here. Three weeks later, I was gone. Uh, nearly 13 years I'd been there. Three weeks later, I was gone. God opened the door for me to begin working at Fuller uh, Seminary in the founding organization under Charles E. Fuller during his lifetime he established an organization called Fuller Evangelistic Association that has since been uh, altered to uh, Charles E. Fuller Institute for Evangelism and Church Growth but during the time this time in 1974 I began working for the Fuller Evangelistic Association and developing a new department called the Department of Church Growth now, I had become somewhat expert in the general field of church growth without having, at that time, been exposed to the larger body of literature. But just through instinct and basic knowledge and know-how, I had figured out the, the mechanics of helping churches grow. It could have worked on the Kiwanis Club as well as the local church, but these were just basic social understandings that I had developed that helped organizationally to achieve the ends of that organization. It was redeemed at the point that I would have only done it for what I thought was Christ's work, but it was, all, it was uh, incomplete at the point that I had become uh, adept at doing something that I could be paid for. It was rather mechanical. Over the next few weeks and months, I became uh, uh, acquainted with the literature of church growth and became very committed to the basic uh, 
teaching as well as philosophy. And in that process of doing so, I, uh, and be develop, I began developing the uh, consultative ministry of Fuller Evangelistic Association Department of Church Growth. During the next three and a half years, we worked with churches all over America and Canada, primarily the United States. We ministered to about 40,000 pastors during that period of time in seminars such as the one you're in today. Over, the, over that period of time, we worked with 27 denominations and nine parachurch organizations. And I became thoroughly acquainted with airports and motels and the church in America. And I found out that the church in America was not all that exciting, not all that stimulating. A lot of wonderful people, sincere people, godly people, but not doing much in the way of Bible kinds of activities. And after about three and a half years of traveling across the country and, and helping churches grow that didn't want to grow, and that's the truth, working with people uh, in ways and means that, 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 that God would give me. You see, one of the tragic things was I was operating in spiritual gifts all the time. But I didn't know I was operating in spiritual gifts. I would go into a fellowship or into a community and I'd think, this is the way you're supposed to start the church here. I'd know exactly, I'd know weeks in advance how to, how to begin the process, who to go see, what to do. I could tell them where they ought to locate their facility, and not by some natural means, but by supernatural means. And what I was doing was selling the gifts of the Spirit in a very, well, illegal way. It's not that it was wrong to do what I was doing, it was the way I was doing it, and with the motivations that I had. And God began correcting me in the process. And over the next few weeks and months, uh, beginning in 1974 and continuing through the early part of, uh, latter part of 77, God began dealing with me fiercely. And I, became, I got to a point where I was almost spiritually bankrupt. I was humiliated and broken inside, worn out. I could do my job and I did it well, but I was in, uh, bankrupt inside. And one night on an airplane flying towards Detroit, I found myself in a desolate place. And I began crying out to God. And I said, oh God, what's wrong? What's wrong with me? Here I am trying to serve you, but it's, it just doesn't taste good. I'm tired, I'm worn out, the doctors say I'm going to die. I'm, I've eaten myself into the grave, my blood pressure is so high, I, I, my head throbs constantly, I'm worn out. Uh, from standing long hours and lecturing. I'm tired of talking to people. Here I am going to Detroit. I don't even know anyone in Detroit. My wife and family are at home. What happened, God? How did it get all twisted around from God, I'll serve you, to this? How did I get here? And I began weeping before the Lord and asking him for direction. When I arrived in Detroit, I, I had missed an earlier plane, and so the people that were supposed to pick me up had already gone home, thinking I was coming at a later time, which I did. Uh, I needed a hotel room. God provided one in a matter of minutes. I've never, never had that happen before in any large city. But within 20 minutes, I was in a hotel room, and I was so grateful that for the first time in nearly four years, I opened the Bible to read it for myself. I'm not saying that I wasn't in the Bible every day. I read it constantly, but not for me. Just for information, for teaching, for things to give to others. 
And I sat down and just opened it casually, and it opened to Psalm 61. And as I read Psalm 61, I saw everything I had just prayed about written out. And I realized how desperate my soul condition was, and I knelt down on the floor by the bed, and I said, Oh, God, here I am again. What's wrong with me? And I fell asleep in that position before he could answer me. After a while, I grew uncomfortable, woke up, crawled into the bed, fell back asleep. And I don't know to this day whether I heard an audible voice or not, so you do what you want to with it. All I know is it woke me up. A couple of hours later, I heard God speak to me. I woke up, and I realized he had said, John, I have seen your ministry. And it was sort of like this. You, know? you could read it in the timbre of his voice. And then he spoke very lovingly and very compassionately. And he said, and now I'm going to show you mine. And I just let out a yell. And I said, oh, Lord, that's what I've always wanted. And I just wept and wept throughout the night. The next morning I got up and I don't know what had happened, but things were different. I knew they were different. Similar to the time when I was converted. I just knew they were different. I knew that I was beginning an adventure. Over the next few weeks and months, God began doing things in my life that I'd never seen before. In all my Christian experience, I had not seen anything like this. Just a few weeks later, I was at a conference up in the northern part of California, uh, ministering that weekend with a, with a colleague, a brother uh, named John McClure. And he was preaching on spiritual gifts, and he had a, a bent and a viewpoint I'd never even heard of before, because John had had a charismatic experience. And so he had a viewpoint that I'd never heard before. But that wasn't really the focal point for me that weekend. The focal point came in the package of a little gal about five foot three uh, that weighed almost as much as I did at the time. God bless her. And her pastor came up to me on the second day of the conference and said, John, I've got a gal in my church. This, my, this pastor was a friend of mine named Ray that I greatly appreciate. And he said, John, I've got a, a gal in my church that has a word from God for you. I said, oh, Ray... Come on, man, I was a marriage and family counselor, you know. She's in midlife crisis, sex life's poor, role change, you know. Kids are out of the nest, you know. He said, well, she's all of that, but if she says she has a word from God for you, she has a word from God for you. I believe that. I've known this woman for ten years. I said, oh, come on, man, I want to be your friend. Don't tell me that. He says, honest. He said, well, I said, well, I'll think about it. Well, he wouldn't leave me alone. Every time he saw me, the rest of the day, he would come up to me. Well, when are you going to see her? When are you going to see her? Finally, I, to just get him off my back, I said, All right, I'll meet her up in the prayer glen this afternoon at, at 1.30. Well, about 1.30, I'm waddling up to the prayer glen, and here comes this gal. And she gets there just ahead of me, and she sits down on this uh, stoop uh, tree, you know, tree trunk, and sits down on it, and she begins crying. I thought, Oh, no. We're going to have an incident. <laughs> this, is, this is bad. This is bad. And I'm standing there going like this. And she proceeded from weeping to sobbing. <sighs> She's crying harder and harder. Half an hour goes by. Finally, in total exasperation, I stop her. I said, listen, lady. Your pastor said you had a word from God for me, and i got to be back down the hill in a few minutes to, to conduct this afternoon session. What is it? And she looked up at me, 
And her face was all tear-stained at that point. And she said, that's it. And it, it was like a gigantic blow to my solar plexus. I was, I, I mean, believe me, I had figured if God was going to speak to me, he could have speak, spoken to me about any of a hundred sins. I mean, I had a long list, you know, and I had a rationale for each one of them. And, I mean, I, I was prepared for that. But when I, when I, when I, when I, I mean, that bypassed my barriers, my filters. When I realized that God was sobbing and weeping over me. Well, I, I'm telling you, I wandered out of that glen, my, hand, my head just spinning. I, I missed the afternoon session. I just walked around. I was just stupefied. God is weeping over me? God is weeping over me? And as I wandered around, I finally got myself together. And you know how you do with experiences like that? You shake them off. You see, it was, a, it was not a verbalized thing. If he, she'd written out a message, I, I couldn't have shaken that off. But you see, it was an emotional thing. And, and we're not supposed to respond to emotion. We do, but we're not supposed to. And, and so I, I finally said, well, this is weird. I mean, that lady, that, that couldn't be of God. And so I, I went on to the, to the dinner hour and then to the evening session. And at the end of the evening session, I look up and here she comes. I thought, oh, no. And so I headed towards the side door. And just as I'm getting to the side door, she grabs my sleeve. And she spins me around. <laughs> and I wanted to <laughs> bop her one. And, and I looked down and I said, what do you want? And she said, God wants to know when you're going to use your authority. I said, authority? Authority? What do you mean? I'm a Quaker. What do you mean authority? You know? She says, I don't know the meaning of the messages. I just get them. <laughs> And for the first time I saw her as a human being, and I thought, oh, God bless you. And here I am, mad at you. You, know, you don't know what you're doing, you poor old... <laughs> so I walked away from her, and again I shrugged it off. Well, the problem was, was that over the next three days, that woman caught me every time I was going in and out of, and kept saying things from God. Well, after, the, you know, after four or five or six, and it got up to seven messages, you begin thinking, well, maybe God's on your tail. So I sat down with my wife and we talked him through and she said, well, it sounds like God. I guess it could be God. And but by the time we got back down the hill, you know, and back into harness and into the following week, I had shrugged it off. But the problem was God wasn't through. God wasn't through. Yes, sir. <laughs> you don't know, but I'm expecting that all the time. <laughs> and so over the next few weeks, God began speaking to me. Well, actually, he spoke to me 19 different times over about a two and a half month period. He spoke to me through counsel of elders and friends, my boss, Pete Wagner. We were flying along on a plane. He turns to me and he says, John, why don't you go home and start a church in Yorba Linda? Well, what he didn't know is that God had already started a church and that was one of the first prophecies the lady gave me. It was the third one, I think. 
You're supposed to go home. You're going to start a church. God's going to teach you some new things, show you his ministry. I thought, how did she know that? A few days later, I'm in, in New York City. A Lutheran pastor came up to me after one of the services. I, I was Actually, it was a church growth seminar. Now, you don't expect God to be hanging around a church growth seminar. And then Lutheran pastor walks up to me and says, I, I'm very embarrassed about this. I've never, I've never, this has never happened to me before, uh, but I've written it down here and I just want to give it to you. I, I just, I feel really... <laughs> and he hands it to me and I, and I look at it and it says, Go home. And so, he began speaking to us in dreams, in visions, out of scripture, through prophecies, tongues, and interpretation. God spoke to me over a two and a half month time in 19 different occasions, and at least two-thirds of them were ways I didn't believe in. that he's not supposed to be doing anymore. And I knew something was up. I'm stupid, but I'm not that stupid. I finally got the message, and I came home. Resigned from Fuller, which was a very difficult thing to do, because I was enjoying, at one level, the activity there. I feel proud of the department and glad for my successor, Carl George. I think he's done an incredible job of taking along what we had done in a rather primitive level and refining it and making it a very acceptable and helpful service to the whole church. But in due course, as I came home, God began teaching me new things. We hadn't been, I hadn't been pastoring very long until God began speaking to me about healing. I was teaching through the Gospel of Luke, and after the third chapter of Luke, if you don't believe in healing, you might as well quit, at least for the next few chapters. And I had to begin teaching healing. It was the first time in my life I had ever taken it seriously. I really equated healing with uh, charlatanry and, and, and foolishness. I, I didn't think anybody, any human being, much less a Christian, should be involved in that kind of activity. I thought it was illegal activity. And I just didn't want to have anything to do with it. But here I was, teaching through, and I, and I had a nice little outline of the, of the fourth chapter of Luke, uh, in which uh, I ignored several key texts. And as I was reading through it, God said, that outline won't do. I said, what's wrong with it? He said, well, you've left these out. I said, I'm not going to put those in, Lord. But over the next few weeks, I began teaching seriously for the first time the subject of healing. Now, the problem with teaching something is that the people don't know you don't believe it. And they begin believing it before you do. And after a few weeks, they didn't want to talk about it anymore. They wanted to start getting healed. And they would begin asking me, when are we going to pray for somebody? I said, oh, no, 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 it's enough just to believe it. <laughs> they said, no, we want you to pray for us. Well, about the fourth or fifth week, God speaks to me, says, have an altar call. We're going to pray for the sick tonight, or heal the sick, is what he said. An altar call to heal the sick. I did not want to do that. But God told me to. And so I called the people forward that day, and we prayed for them, and nobody got well. In fact, some of us got sick praying for the sick. We caught their flus, we got their colds, we went home with their headaches. It was awful. Our prayers would come out of our mouths and dribble down over our chins and just hang there. 
It was the most humiliating experience of my life. And I went home to saying to the Lord, I'm never going to do that again. Well, the very next Sunday, he made me do it both Sunday morning and Sunday night. And every week thereafter. After about eight or nine weeks of praying for the sick and nobody getting well, I was fit to be tied. I was yelling. I was angry. I, was, I did all the things I do when I'm frustrated and hurting. And I was yelling at God for the first time in my life. And I was saying, this isn't right. This is dumb. This is dumb what you're doing here. People are leaving the church. Don't you want people to come to this church? You told me it was your church. Now what's the deal here? People, and over half the congregation left. In about nine, they got tired. They said, oh, we don't believe this stuff. They slammed their Bible shut and left. They said, we're not going to get involved in this silliness. You know? And I didn't realize there was such hostility over the subject of healing. I didn't realize. I started getting letters, long letters from angry people. You know, you're preaching heresy. You believe that God can heal? I said, I thought I was teaching the stuff out of the book. You know, it's, the, it's in the book. It's, I, I read it right here out of the book. <laughs> but I didn't believe it either. Several weeks went by and God began dealing with me one day. Well, what had happened was I was studying, getting ready for Sunday, and I closed the Bible and said, I'm not going to do that. And God says, either do it or get out. I said, out? Out, Lord? Out of the ministry? Out of the kingdom? <laughs> you know, out? What, what do you mean out, you know? He says, do not preach your experience. Preach my word. Wait a minute, that's been reversed on me all my life. People have said that. But now you're saying preach something that we're not experiencing. He said, right. I said, this is weird. This is really weird. I don't want to do this, but I don't want to get out either. <laughs> so I preached. Well, that Sunday was the worst of all. I mean, we had a lady that was demonized. We didn't know what demonized people were. We had this demonized lady come up and practically try to undress in front of everybody. I mean, it was embarrassing, humiliating. We're trying to hide her, you know. We're <laughs> it's all, you know, weird stuff. You know, I thought, I'm going to leave this church too, you know. All the time, God's, he's at every meeting. I mean, this, his presence, a lovely presence is with us. But we didn't know that the presence and the power were the same thing. We'd not been taught that. God hadn't spoken to us. And so the presence would come and we'd all cry and worship the Lord. And it, well, it was more like this in those days. And, you know, <laughs> more like that in those days. But, I mean, we were worshiping. We were having a wonderful time. For us, it was total abandonment, you know. We were having a great time at that point. And we would just worship the Lord, and His presence would come, and people would weep, and people would be converted. I mean, from the first day, people have been converted in our ministry. You know something? I've only preached a, uh, the kerygma, the, uh, the gospel message, about four times in seven years. And so, I, you know, I'm definitely not focused, in, from a pulpit standpoint, on the unsaved. But you know, we've baptized hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new converts. I'm not even sure how many... I would guess at least 3,000. 
over the last seven years. So God has been saving people in our midst from day one. But not because we were focused on that, but because we were focused on Him. And as we would come into His presence and worship Him, and gather and collect and just give ourselves over to worship, He would just come and, and rest on us. We could feel His presence. I mean, the air would thicken up. We could feel His presence in the room. God was with us. We knew it. But we didn't know that the presence and the power were the same thing. And so we would pray, and we'd pray these pitiful prayers. Oh, God, if you're up there anywhere, if you've ever done anything anytime, Here's a worthy subject. You, know, you ever prayed a prayer like that? You have too. You've prayed prayers just like that. You're just like me. That's what you're like. And I didn't know how to pray either. One time I was praying one of those kind of prayers. You know, God says, what are you doing? I said, I'm fixing to get this guy well. He says, no, you're not. I said, I thought so. I said, what's the problem? He says, well, the way you're praying. I said, what do you mean? I mean, I had done everything, man. I'd, I'd claimed it. I'd named it. I, had, I, you know, I would have done anything in those early... I, I explored every theology I had ever heard of, you know. I mean, after you failed 500 times, wouldn't you? And we had failed at least that many times. And I, I was going to do anything, you know. Those, I read every book I could get my hands on on anybody that ever had any success on healing anyone. And so I, we were ready to try anything. He said, he said, well, the way you're praying. And I said, well, what's wrong? And he says, why don't you pray like we did? I said, like you did? He said, we, us guys. I said, well, how did they pray? You know, I had never studied that in my whole Christian experience. And I went home that night and uh, got out of the Gospels and just went through and read all the prayers of Jesus. They're really short. <laughs> C. Rise, pick up your bed, and walk. That's a hot one, isn't it? Here's my favorite. Come forth. Don't you think he did that? Huh? I mean, that separates the men from the boys. Come forth. That's a hot prayer. Now, you're going to look pretty stupid if he doesn't come forth. But, I mean, if he does, you know, you're going to look good. They're going to put your picture in a paper and everything. And after all, that's what it's all about. Isn't that looking good? Well, in any case, <laughs> then I went home. I mean, after that, I tried to, to adapt all those prayers. Now, it's, it's strange trying to pray the prayers of the New Testament. Well, that's a whole other subject. We'll get into it later. Suffice it to say that in the early development of the healing ministry here, it was very difficult. We went for nearly a year before we saw the first person healed. The occasion of the first person being healed occurred the, immediately the night after one of our greatest defeats. Having prayed for somebody for uh, nearly two hours that did not get well, I was in utter despair. I threw myself headlong on the floor. I'm, I've never been subject to kind of those emotional displays. I threw myself on the floor and just sobbed, and I hit the floor, and I said, Oh, God, it's not fair. You tell us to teach what your book says, and you don't back up your act. Here we are, we're doing the best we can do. It's not fair, God. It's not fair. You tell us to believe it, you, you write it down, you keep it for all of these centuries. I read it, I tell the people that this is what you said. I even say that this is what you said you'd do with what you said. And now you're not doing what you said you'd do if I did my part. It's not fair. 
You know that one? <laughs> you do know that one, don't you? Oh, I was brokenhearted. Cried and cried. After a little while, I became sort of conscious, and I looked around, and all my friends were laying there with me. We had all just been broken up over this experience. One of my best friends named Jim, he's a big old guy, and he was super humiliated. And we were up on a stage. It was in a, in a high school auditorium at that time. We were up on a stage behind this curtain. And when he left, oh, Jim walks out, you know, and he steps out through the, the curtain and looks back and says, I'm never going behind that damn curtain again. <laughs> and he's upset. He gets home. <laughs> he gets... This is funny. He gets home and God gives him a verse. You know how a verse will pop into your mind? And so he goes in and opens up the Bible and looks and it says, The Lord dwelleth behind the curtain. (laughs) Jim is so repentant, he goes out into his backyard and and sets down in a chicken coop and throws dirt on his head. God bless him. That man knows how to repent. <laughs> well, our worst defeat that night, I go home, I go to bed, I wake up the next morning, the phone's ringing, I go to the phone, and here's a new family in the church, and the guy's on the phone, he says, listen, I got a new job, I, 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 I've got to go to work today, this is my, I've got a brand new job, it's just starting today, my wife's sick with a fever, can you come over and pray for her so she'll get well so she can take care of the kids, so I can go to my new job, I think, I put my hand on, you've really got me into it this time. <laughs> Look what, this guy believes this stuff. He's going to lose his job. I'll be right there. <laughs> in my best professional tone, hang up. I get in the car, and all the way over there, I'm, I'm talking to God. I'm saying, this, this, it's still not right. You know? This is not right. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's not right. It's a mess. So I get there, and I knock at the door, and a guy comes to the door, leads me in the house, and I mean, he, I thought she would be out in the living room in her house. He takes me right straight back into their bedroom. I mean, this woman was sick. No woman would let you see her looking like that. I mean, this woman was sick. You know, sick. Sick, sick. I mean, she was sick. And I looked at her, and I thought, oh, she's sick. Not good. Not good, you know. This is not good. This is not going to make me look good. This woman is sick. You know, she had a high fever. Face was all flushed. You know, and I walked over and I mumbled some terrible. I don't mean what. I don't know what I said. I, and, I, and I turned around and I began explaining to the guy why people don't always get well when you pray for them. I did. I I began explaining to him why they don't always get well when you pray for them, and. And he's looking at me, but he's a little bit taller than I am, and he's looking over my shoulder, and he's grinning. And I suddenly realize he's not looking at me, he's looking over my shoulder. And I turn around, and there's his wife, she's up, she's got her house coat on, she's already brushed her hair, and she's making the bed. And I said, what happened to you? (laughs) And she says, I'm well, you healed me. I said, oh no, I can't heal anybody. And she said, well, you healed me. I'm feeling fine. You know, would you like to stay for some coffee or something? You know, I said, no, I think I'll just go. <laughs> and so there I went out the door. And I get out the front lawn. And I look up and I go, all right. You know, we got one. Woo! 
I was so incredibly excited. Oh, I got in the car, and I'm driving along, and I had a vision. It was the first one I'd ever had. I mean, really clear graphic. And I'm driving along, and it's a beautiful morning. And, well, of course, it would be. And I'm driving along, and all of a sudden, over the landscape, superimposed over to school. As far as I can see. It's what looks like a cloud bank, and it's going all the way across the, the, the sky. And I look at it, and I realize it's not a cloud bank, it's a honeycomb. You ever seen a honeycomb when it comes? Yeah. All right, it's dripping. And below the, the, the cloud bank, the honeycomb, are people. And they're in all kinds of different postures. Some of them are very reverent. They're, they're weeping. They've got their hands out and they're catching this honey. And some of them are sharing it with their friends. And other people are coming and dipping their finger in other people's honey. And, and other people are really irritated. <laughs> you know, trying to get out of this honey. And they don't like it. And, and I'm looking at this thing, you know, and, I'm, and I, I'm so excited. I pull over the side of the road and I'm sitting there looking at it. And I said, God, what is it? What is it? And he said, John, that's my mercy. He says, for some people, it's a blessing. And for some people, it's not. He said, John, don't ever beg me for healing again. Look at it. It's, there's plenty for everyone. John, the problem isn't on my end. The problem is down there where you are. That was one of the most profound and moving experiences I've ever had. And I've never looked at healing the same way again. I've never gone into the, the sick and dying's room in the hospital. I've never looked at a child that was in, in desperate condition. I've watched my friends die and prayed for them, but I've never, ever known the desperation of soul that I knew before that moment. Because I know the problem isn't on his end. Our God has, has sent mercy in the Son he sent his word to heal them. Jesus has come. He brought a message of love from the Father. Healing is here. The problem is appropriating it, getting blessed in it, receiving it. Over the next few days, we'll talk to you about many other aspects of this incredible experience of learning how to move in the power of God. Let's all stand. I want to encourage you to keep